Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I'm your host, and I'm once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show invites you as the listener to picture yourself kind of where I'm sitting at right now. I'm in a cigar lounge, and uh, I'm in a very comfortable situation. So imagine yourself sitting at a cafe, sitting in a cigar lounge, sitting in a restaurant, hanging out at the park, in a salon somewhere. And you're that third person in the mastermind conversation, listening for the mastermind breakthroughs and aha moments that can change your trajectory or at least bring you a little bit closer to starving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. See, I had to get out of my home office and uh, I had a meeting that ran a little over, so I didn't have time to drive home. So I thought, the heck with it. You know what? We're doing it from here. And one of the beauties of podcasting is you don't necessarily need a $25,000 studio with soundproofing or to add an addition to your house. You can really do this from anywhere. So today we are in the field. You may hear a little bit of ambient noise in the background, but that's what you would hear anyway. We have a guest today who is going to address something that has been very much a centerpiece of the environment of business, particularly in the past four years since the bug hit. And the way lends itself to one of the challenges and the yin yangs and the push and pulls that emerged when working from home became a major working from home became a major part of how we do business and the concerns that emerged from corporate leadership about whether we can get these people to do their jobs. So the title is Employee Autonomy and Accountability can go hand in hand. And this is about how leaders and managers can build a more sustainable organizational culture. So to just give you a little bit of background, what we see is that contemporary managers way too often adhere to the misbegotten idea that people are inherently incapable and untrustworthy and therefore need managerial control. They need adult supervision. Yet, when employees and teams, we find, are empowered to make important decisions, self-organize, and work autonomously to achieve their project goals, such self-management not only improves employee engagement, but generates more productive and adaptive teams. I have statistics on some of the things associated with this, which we'll probably cover at some point during our conversation. These organizations have been experimenting with elements of self-management, and they're finding that once they put them in place, they reveal that employee autonomy is equated equated by accountability. So let me introduce you to who we have today. His name is Drew Jones. He's an anthropologist, former business school professor, and a practicing management consultant. He's the founding 
founding partner of Experience, which is a workplace culture and strategy consultancy. And there's a quite a story to him, and I'm going to have him tell you about it, but I just want to introduce him to you very briefly. And he has a book out, which I'm going to encourage you to read. It's called Open Culture Handbook, Five Questions to Drive Engagements and Innovation. It came out just a few months ago, and I myself am looking forward to reading it in detail. I've had the opportunity to scan it briefly, having purchased it on Kindle. But for right now, let's bring in Drew Jones. Come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, Adam. Thanks so much for for having me. It's great to uh, join you in the conversation. All right. Mm -hmm. So what we like to do here is before we dive into the key messaging of the show is we like to pull back the curtain a little bit and we like to invite our guest to share in your own words, Drew, a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. So take it away. <clears throat> so sorry if I cough a little bit. I'm just uh, getting over a bit of a cold. That's all well, right. So I appreciate the opportunity <clears throat> to talk um, sort of generally about how I got here. I, like you said at the, in the intro, I'm, I'm an anthropologist by training. Um Never really practices an anthropologist. That's sort of part of the journey. I finished up my <laughs> PhD and took a job with a small consulting agency while I was wrapping up the PhD and have kind of never looked back. Uh, though once you're an anthropologist, you're always an anthropologist. So I I kind of I see like other anthropologists, I I see culture everywhere and I I think through the lens of of culture. So over many years, I uh, really been working in business, both as a business school professor for about a dozen years, and concurrent with that, ran a small consultancy doing culture and leadership assessments and leadership succession work, uh, largely with small, medium-sized family firms. Um, and, and so that was my bread and butter for many years was just culture and leadership. At, at, you know, as an anthropologist, though, honestly. It's only been in this book uh, that I really, as it were, come out of the closet as an anthropologist because for whatever set of reasons, and it's one of the frustrations that I have and one of the motivations for writing the book, uh -huh. was to try to articulate an explicitly anthropological take on culture and and performance in, in the business environment. Um, so that that's the, the background there. And I... Throughout many years in teaching in business school, you know, I never told my students that that was my background. Of course, the dean and the department chairs all all knew because they knew my CV. Um, but but in in many ways, this is part of the story because, <clears throat> for the most part, the anthropological perspective, outside of market research and some of the customer facing stuff, doesn't really draw on anthropology much at all. And and in my view, that's leads to what I try to address in the book is what I call the, the culture dilemma. Um, and that is, you know, most people agree that with the Drucker adage that culture eats strategy for breakfast, uh, mm -hmm. tons of resources are poured into this annually, both internally, but also externally with consultants and all the rest. But statistically, you know, business if you look at it critically, is is really bad at culture, and I'll I'll quantify that a bit uh, here. For sixty plus years, American firms have had roughly thirty percent 
level of employee engagement. Yep. Around, around 70% of corporate change management programs fail to achieve their stated objectives. I'm sorry, what percentage of that? 70. 70. Yeah. Cause I am. Yeah. Cause one of my, one of my major clients is in the change management realm and uh, you know, we would do a lot of studies on efficacy of change management and there's so many different things to it. And I find that number just absolutely mind-blowing that it's 70% of these initiatives fail. I have reasons for that, but go ahead. Well, but you know, let's, we can, if, if it's okay, well, I'd love to come right back to that because mm-hmm. the standard reasons given for that, I think and generally miss the mark. I mean, most people say, well, people just don't like to change uh-huh. or leaders don't communicate it well enough. Um, and the onus of change. Well, I'll get back to that in a minute. But uh, and you know, eighty roughly HBR Harvard Business Review research suggests that around eighty percent of mergers and acquisitions miss the mark, largely because of what they call poor culture fit between the two firms. And then another one that's pretty pretty staggering is uh, research by Gartner, uh, again published in HBR, suggests that around. And large companies, billion-plus-dollar companies, spend around $2,000 per employee per year on culture stuff, whether internally or externally with consultants. Wow. However, um, only 69% of employees say they believe in the cultural aspirations of their leadership. 90% don't behave in ways that align with those aspirations and and, and a full uh, one, only less than a third of those culture that culture spend uh, uh, reports a positive ROI. So you have what I start the book with is, is this situation of utter futility when it comes to managing culture, despite its purported importance. So that was the motivation for, for the book was to, was to go back to my roots as an anthropologist to think about, well, what would a, from a scientific scientific perspective, how would an anthropologist try to solve this riddle? And uh, I, I, I went back to just the hard science of what culture is from an evolutionary science perspective and began to see, I think, what the, what the issue is and started to try to find firms that go about managing culture very differently. And when I found these, I realized that, wow, in each case, they are top of their industry financially, and they go about this in ways that every you know mainstream firms don't. And so that's the motivation behind the book. And we can talk about some more of the science, uh, but I'd, I'd love to also tackle that issue of, you know, your take on why change management fails. Right. I think that there are a few things. Um, we can go right into the change management right now, actually. And I know you have a number of points you shared with me in the green room, and we're going to get to most of those just in the in the process of our conversation here. So, buckle up. Uh, yeah. But I think that I think that um, now um, my my friend Brian Gorman, uh, who is well known in the change management space, uh, speaks a lot of organizational anchors. And sometimes these are very macro and sometimes they're very micro. So one of the examples he gives is during a time of tumultuous change, people look for some of the simple things to stay in place. For example, if uh, there's 
and that, like say a corporate acquisition or a major change in management or um, a sudden influx of new business or a sudden loss of business, people look for things like knowing that there's still a refrigerator in a break room where they can put their lunch. They want their office or cubicle or workspace to remain as it is so they're still seeing the same surroundings. Just some of these small tangibles that let them know that while a lot of things are moving around and shifting, that at least the stuff that they see and experience on the lower level of Maslow's hierarchy are still present. And that gives them some sense of belief that things are going to be okay. Uh, just like, you know, if you're actually on a boat and you're in the waves, the fact that the thing hasn't sunk and you still can hold on gives you the confidence to know you're going to get through the storm. I think another part of it is that companies will attempt in the interest of showing that they're quote unquote doing something to make changes that may either be unnecessary or unfeasible the organization may not have the maturity level to engage in the level of change that it likes to, or you have change consultants or somebody in senior management who read a book on the airplane um, and got some idea, and they want to just take all the chess pieces and move them around, whereas the smarter or more viable way of approaching it would be to just make the next move. Yeah, to make it tangible, yeah. Yeah, and that, and so I think that's – I think. I mean, we can go into so many different tentacles from that, but I think it yeah. basically is around those two things. When you shake things so things up so much that people literally look around their surroundings and they see everything changing, it gives them a sense of fear that the next change may be them out the door, uh, yeah, and yeah. and uh, and then just change for the sake of change without any rooting in how is this really going to move things ahead uh, because somebody uh, met a consultant at a networking event and hired them or read a book on an airplane, they say, oh, well, we got to have two of these. It uh, right, reminds, reminds me back when I was in training and development uh, 20 years ago and e-learning, uh, I know you've been around for a minute too. E-learning was the big hot okay. thing. And, mm -hmm. uh, and almost every presentation I saw on e-learning on one of the PowerPoint slides, there was this one little cartoon that um that illustrated the challenges with communicating e-learning which in itself was a change management thing because now we're moving people from analog to digital is um you'd have the um head of you'd have the head of whoever was in charge of e-learning meeting with some senior manager trying to explain it and the senior manager would say i don't know what you're talking about but you said our competitor has one so order us two of them yeah <clears throat> yeah and I think it's that type of thinking of, well, if our competition is doing it, we have to do it too, or we're going to get left behind. And that's not always the case. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, <clears throat> so much so much of that is, um, in, in a way, happens to employees. They're told mm -hmm. what needs to happen, and then the onus of change falls on them when they're not involved in the change itself or determining what needs to be changed. And so... You know, that's really, I think, the main difference that I'm trying to articulate here is that, you know, peer-to-peer, -peer, I don't want to say everything, but peer-to-peer, -peer, and really you see this in terms of a metaphor, not a metaphor, but as, as an analog or as a mode of uh, inspiration. And a lot of companies that are working open source software, open source uh -huh. sort of cultural model, whether it's 
the original Google or GitHub, GitLab, or Automatic, these companies that empower employees to do everyday things, <clears throat> whether it's, so for example, at Automatic, the parent company of WordPress, they, uh -huh. they everything's peer to peer. And they are 100%, while I am an advocate of workplace, and this is part of what we do, uh, a lot of these things can be achieved just by commitments that a company makes to its people to empower them to make important decisions. So, for example, <clears throat> at Automatic, when they are going to hire a new person, and I've had several friends work for them, one still does, um, they'll give a nod to somebody and that person will come in on a trial basis for two to three months and work with the team on a live project and make a, a small amount of money as sort of an intro experience. And then the team decides, uh, is that person going to make the cut or not? So hiring is a peer-to-peer -peer decision. Evaluations, you know, at, at Morningstar and some of these other companies that pro profile <clears throat> not Morningstar, the uh, credit rating, but Morningstar, the um, tomato processing company. Yeah. Uh, they organize complete self-organization, but this is where it gets back to the accountability. So the traditional manager would say, wow, this is just utter chaos. You can't, how could I possibly trust my people to get all these things done without me, the manager? Well, in Morningstar, when a new employee starts, they're required to write up what's called a, a, a colleague letter of understanding or a, a clue. And it's a commitment with a set of deliver or va the value that this person believes that they can contribute to this team for the coming year in a team agreement or a con it's actually a contract. And it's, but it's written to a specific person in the team on the team. And so Every two months, the recipient of a clue posts that new hire's progress towards their own stated goals for everybody in the company to see. So on the right. one hand, there's this self-motivation, self-organizing ethos, but at the same time, it's probably the most highly accountable organization you can find because nobody can hide from their performance. And as a result right, of people holding each other accountable, literally on a daily, monthly basis, the performance is, is sustained and they have, again, innovation, low, low reten uh, attrition, and, and all these HR markers that you, that you aspire to. Um, and so cha when change happens at a company like that, it's because somebody at a line level or mid-level feels like there needs to be change and they're empowered to do it. Nobody's telling them, these are the big changes. These are the things you have to do uh, in this time frame. And if you don't, then, you know, there's a punishment schedule that we've figured out that to, 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 to keep you in line, you know, the carrot and stick approach. Yeah. Uh, so that that's, you know, that's just a different a way to different way to think of change from more of a, command and control approach to more of a co-creation approach. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And you're absolutely right about that. So what I want to do is I do want to spend a bit of time on some of the shifts that have happened, particularly in the past four years. And I want to start with a statistic. And I quote this in my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. Uh, there's There have been various studies conducted, and there's one specifically that I cite. I don't have the book in front of me, so I cannot remember the name of the university that did it. But it aligns with a few other strategies I, or studies I compared it to. And what was determined is that when you have knowledge workers in an office environment where, you know, they work the typical eight-hour workday with the hour for lunch and all that, that um, if you look at the amount of time that they actually spend on activities that generate return on investment for the company, out of that eight-hour workday, an average of two hours and 53 minutes. Yeah. What is the rest of that time spent on? Pointless meetings office politics bullshit, water cooler chatter, uh, messing around online, cubicle stop buys. Shopping. Shopping, yeah. Oh, yeah, especially on the holidays. I, I, I imagine that number drops way below two hours a day mm -hmm. in and around the holidays. Right. So you had when the idea of working from home was forced upon companies when when the, the bug hit back uh, around this time four years ago. And companies that have been resistant to allowing certain people, uh, you know, hybrid or flex schedules or working from home or what have you, were now being told, oh, your people will work from home or you will cease operations. And they were forced into that thing that they were resisting. And I was thinking, and this is again from my book, Every cloud has a silver lining. Invest in the silver because it's a precious metal. So the silver lining is now they were going to have to face it whether they wanted to or not. And my immediate thought was, you bring the people to the office because you think that's going to make them more accountable. And they're spending two hours and 53 minutes out of their eight-hour workday actually producing for your company. And you're concerned that they might do laundry while they're working from home? <laughs> I mean... yeah. <laughs> It's, it's an, you know what, now, again, I, I do, <clears throat> and we do as a company advocate um, co-presence to a certain extent. So, yeah. and, and design is a big part of that and, and thoughtful design, but, but you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here because, you know, most folks aren't really don't, this isn't visible to most folks because we're all busy with our day to day, but, but a lot of change was really underway long before the pandemic. Okay, tell me more about that. Regarding this conversation. So years ago, beginning in the mid-90s, really early 90s, 93, 94, a, a small company, and I profiled them in the last chapter here, called Veldhome. It's a Dutch consultancy. They now uh, have an office here in, in New York, and actually we partner with them a little bit because uh, we're really like-minded companies. But they pioneered a concept, and this is really, to me, kind of where we're heading on in all of this, whatever one wants to call it. But it's a concept called activity-based working, or ABW, yeah. ABW for short. And for a lot of people, it's just a, a design solution. But, but what ABW is, is it's a rethink of how an organization works, not just where they work. So with ABW, is it's designed around these principles, is that in an ABW company, nobody has an office, fixed office or desk. Everybody, including, right. the, including the CEO. Now, 
they have preferential access to certain private spaces and office and meeting rooms for client work and that sort of stuff. But, and this goes back 35 years, 30 plus years. Uh, uh -huh. And there are a lot of companies that have been working like this again, long before the pandemic, but the way it works is the idea is it's employee choice. That is, you can work from home or at the office, whatever works for you based on the activity you're working on at that time, that part of the day or that full day. Right. And at the office itself, everybody has a laptop and a locker, much like a co-working environment where you pick up your stuff and you plug in in an, in an area. And this is one of the design side of all of this is ABW offices are rich with like 15 or 20 different types of spaces to accommodate different activities. And you plug into to a space that fits what you're working on. It might be a small team meeting, it might be solo work, it might be a large meeting, whatever it might be. Um, and, and you do that for a period of time and then you're done with that. You, you pick up your stuff and you go to another activity. There's uh -huh. so many things about this that make sense <clears throat> that sort of anticipated the pandemic. Well, one, it operates under the assumption that instead of a fixed desk or office per employee, you end up with an, a desk or, or office per every two or three employees. So right away, you reduce your real estate footprint and costs by 30, in some cases these days, by 30 to 60%. Right. right. Because space utilization rates before the pandemic were between 40 and 50%. So at any given time, half of all offices were empty anyway because of yeah. informal at-home working, people working in gathering in conference rooms or in the cafeteria or whatever. Um, now, utilization rates post-pandemic in these big offices can be 10%. So it's one, it's monumentally wasteful to do this. Uh, and it's just a, an inertia and legacy system thing. People have been, tenant organizations have just been convinced that this is what you do. You bring people in, Everybody has an office. And then the CRE, the corporate real estate folks, because it's their business model, they convince the, the company, well, you need you need more space than you need now, because what if you grow? So you need room for all these new hires. Well, this is this this is the trap that companies got in uh, is, you know, the architecture and design industry. They want to sell space. The corporate real estate industry wants to sell space. And other than people, you know, real estate's often the second largest cost for big companies. So, yeah. So it's just a monumental waste. And so what what activity-based working anticipated was this era of choice where sometimes you're at home, sometimes you're at their office, and you st and it's also a digital first point of view. Whereas you if you can do something through a tool through online, you do that first. And then if, you know, if you need to be physically with other people, you do that second. So, so there's all kind of reasons why it makes sense. And then the final reason is an organizational reason. And this is the hardest to sell here in the U S but this is really as an anthropologist where my passion is <clears throat> with activity-based work. And that is because nobody is treated sp special in an ABW office, everybody works in the same way. So in companies where this is rolled out, the senior leadership is working in and around everybody else and they're accessible. 
They're right. Not, they're not up on the third or third floor, protected by two personal assistants, and they walk through the floor, and everybody goes, "Oh, oh, that's the CEO." No, the CEO is just a regular dude, and you engage that. Employees tend to go engage that person in everyday conversation, so you end up with a reduction in the number of meetings. You end up with this informal mentoring and learning for younger people who do value being in the office for these reasons. So it really almost has a democratizing effect organizationally on the whole thing, and you're reducing costs. So I wrote an article about a year ago on all of this post-pandemic, and it's called the Copernican office. And it's this idea that, you know, for so long, uh, you know, employees, we were beholden to the interests of what I call the the workplace industry complex, construction or corporate real estate firms, CBRE, JLL, Cushman Wakefield, all these architecture mm-hmm. and design industry. They were driving what working meant, right? Not employees, but the pandemic happened, and my my wife refers to it. You know, instead of the Great Resignation, she refers to it as the great domestication, because we all discovered, aha, that much of this work can be done at home. And wow, on top of that, I'm more connected to my family and my home life. So there's an organic quality to this change that I think, in my view, will make activity-based working or something like that the inevitable future, though we're still in the phase where the inertia and the deer in the headlight syndrome is such that companies are de- in denial still that, mm-hmm. that this is going to happen. But at some point, offices will, they'll still be important, but they'll be much, much smaller. They'll have different design typologies and, and they'll serve a different purpose, but we're just not there yet. Uh, but right. I think at this point, you know, the employee experience is really driving all of this. And it's because if they don't find an environment that, where they can balance their life in a way that they want, they'll just move on to another firm. And so it becomes a talent retention challenge in the end, uh, but we're still right in the middle of it. So, you know, it's, you know, the verdict's not out, but that's my hunch. Well, first a brief story and then an observation about my life. So the date was December 5th, 2002. So this is about 22, 21, 22 years ago. And I was living in Southwestern Pennsylvania at the time. And I was um, at that job that I had while I was in MBA school. So that Thursday morning, the night, you know, overnight, they had had a, a freak unexpected snowstorm. It hadn't been forecast, but everybody woke up to like six inches of snow on the ground. And because it hadn't really been forecast, it was so unexpected, they hadn't plowed the roads. Now, I lived about an hour from where I worked at the time. And it was physically impossible for me to get beyond my driveway. Now, at the same time, I had a job at that company that was responsible for organizing meetings with our community stakeholders. And one of those meetings was scheduled for that day. So somebody had to reach out and cancel that meeting and uh, and reschedule it and contact a bunch of people and do other things. So I contacted my my director, who himself couldn't get out of his house either. And he said, well, just turn on your laptop and uh, get your cell phone and do what you need to do. So I did that. 
And then next thing you know, my boss's boss, you know, the chief program officer comes huffing and puffing out of his office saying, why is Adam working from home? And makes this big scene about it that uh, people told me about later. And, uh, and he wanted, he wanted to, get all disciplinary on me and everything else it's like first of all and and this goes back to what you said about um you know senior management being uh, isolated between their two layers of uh personal assistance in their big corner everything it's like first of all go back and sit in your corner office and do your paperwork you have no idea what's going on here exactly. and uh, second 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 of all and uh and, uh, and this chief program officer was saying we don't have a work from home policy it's like and so when my directors told me this i said yeah, that's right. You don't have a work from home policy. So what I do wrong? <laughs> there you go. So hey, he wants to go disciplinary on it. He has a boss too. I'll go to them. Yeah. Never heard. Never heard about it again. Of course, a new edition of the employee handbook conveniently came out two weeks later. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, in, but now, in, in the event of a massive storm, blah blah blah. I mean, you know, it's not right. Ex 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 exactly. So. So um, when I've told this story in the past, I've told it with a lot of venom, um, and some yeah. of that even crept through the way I shared it there. But the power of hindsight is recognizing that um, the actors in that situation were dealing with the information they had at the time, and the patterns had been handed down to them. And this all went back to, how can somebody in a position classified as administrative possibly work from home? Because they still hadn't made the connection. There were these things called laptops and cell phones, even in 2002. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and it wasn't, it wasn't like, and it wasn't like there was nothing extraordinary. I couldn't get out of my freaking driveway. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, come on. Let me, you got to put a little bounce in. Now, and I'll disclose another thing, which I've shared other times I've told this story. Um, my dad had been driving home from work that night. And uh, because of the snowstorm, he got in an accident where the other motorist died. Do you really Ooh. think I wanted to go to work that day? Wow. Because I was still living with my parents at the time. You really think I wanted to uh, to not be there while he's all distraught over the fact that even though it wasn't his fault, he was involved in an accident where the other person <laughs> lost their life? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the lack of humanity there is almost what is required in the traditional model of management. Uh -huh. and, it's, and I hate to be too severe in saying that, but so much of what we're talking about here, you know, you think about what the corporate office originally was designed for. It's really a reflection of the, an industrial age where people went into a physical location to physically make things. Yep. But then when it became knowledge work, you went there because all of the knowledge and information was there. Yeah. But once that, and then one, especially with network computing and security and cloud and everything else, all those arguments are gone because access to everything is everywhere. Now, of right. course, you need a VPN and you, you want, you want your security and all of that, uh -huh. um, but those are red herrings just to blame it on that. What, 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 what we see instead is, just you know, raw displays of or, or perform, rich, what I call ritual performances of power, right? Because and this is the anthropologist in me speaking because these it's it's very frustrating. And so, for example, 
it, it just it, it continues. But you were, you know, younger generations of leadership who view things differently are starting to get it. I, I saw, and I, I don't want to, I don't remember the person's name, and I don't want to disparage anybody, but I saw 60 Minutes last weekend. I haven't watched that show in 25 years. I just happened to yeah. catch it, and it was about the collapse of commercial real estate in New York City or the impending yeah. collapse. And it was a guy who runs a large portfolio of office properties and um, old school guy, probably in his 80s. Uh-huh. And, you know, billionaire kind of guy. But yeah. his share price is down 70% because his holdings are just empty. But at any rate, he says, and he turns to the camera with this, you know, this mystique of management wisdom. He says the biggest tragedy is working in our economy in the last four years is working from home. <laughs> and he went in this tirade and I was thinking, yeah. this guy is as far removed from the pulse of what's going on in the real world as I've ever heard. Um, and, and, but that, but that's uh, that's what we're up against because the tenant organizations, right, that that lease from these people, are being told well, they have to have this, and they're they're preaching from the same hymnal of of co presence is is required for effective management. But it's essentially, you know, what this future of activity based working holds is that the role of management simply has to change. It's not one of monitoring and creating fear and motivation mm -hmm. through fear. It's got to be communicating clearly what's going on here. There's a great, there's a great a psychologist from a Claremont graduate university called Paul Zach, who writes beautiful stuff on trust and motivation. And, and according to his research, <clears throat> only around 40% of the people in his sample could articulate what the company's strategy was. So you have people who show up because they need to be there because their managers are telling them they have to be there. And they're just doing these discrete, disconnected tasks, waiting for five o'clock to roll around so they can go home. Uh -huh. And they don't really know the why of how it all stitches together. But th that's the role of leadership and management is making clear that making sure that everybody knows why they're doing what they're doing and they're not, you know, doing things that are wasteful or and this is how you end up with um what is it two hours and however many minutes you cited of the productive work two hours and 53 minutes because people show up and, and it really isn't that that far removed from remember from the movie office space right uh-huh where peter is asked about what he does on a given day mm -hmm. uh, I, I, that's a bit extreme because you know mike judge is a a snarky writer yeah though I love him. Um, but but something like that is is more commonplace than these managers would like to uh, admit. And so in the end, I think <clears throat> the pandemic and all the fallout from that is fundamentally reshaping the whole thing. And um, yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of in the, we're kind of in the eye of the um, hurricane, I'd say right now. Yeah, now this guy on 60 Minutes who 
said that the biggest tragedy in American business was working from home. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I saw what you were saying between the lines. It was his biggest tragedy. Yeah, and, what ha- and, 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 it's, and it's real simple. And I'm not even going to knock the guy for it. Yeah. He, missed, he missed the pivot. Missed and, and, the and, and you know you know what? A lot of people miss pivots. I've missed pivots. But uh, but you, you have two choices. You can double down on that and continue to fall further behind. You can say, "Well, I got to get I got to get caught up." Now this guy, um, he's a billionaire. Um, you know, he said he's about eighty years old, so he has the wisdom of years. He's got the machinery. He can pivot. Well, yeah, he can do it again. He, I mean, and, and the fact that he's got the capital and the <laughs> background, which means which means he probably also has the network and the connections, he could do another great thing. Well, it, it's interesting. They, they, it was sort of a tale, a, a tale of two stories, whatever their expression is, because um, others in the in the story there uh, on sixty minutes were converting their por- properties into residential, and um, yeah, we're starting. Yeah, we're starting to see more of that, and, it, and, it's, and it's been proposed. And I actually like this idea of taking some of this um, this corporate real estate that will never be used for corporate again and turning into housing for the homeless. Yeah, there that. I mean, I mean, I mean, now, now, now you're talking about public policy in a way of solving a problem. Exactly. Pivots. Yeah. Pivots. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and so from a big D design perspective, this is really exciting stuff. I mean, Ginsler is working on this at scale. Uh, they're converting, I'm trying to think of the name of the neighborhood in New York. They're helping convert a couple of large buildings in, in an area that, were office into community uh, funded arts programs for for at risk kids. Yeah. Um, so there, it's a huge opportunity if we look at it in a certain way, um, and it's just a matter of adapting. I mean, this is this is what it takes, and th- this is just what we're facing today as a, as a society. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So, so pivoting off of this, um, among the points you wanted to cover here, and I think this is a real big one, is you know over the past couple of years we've heard about the great realignment or the great resignation and these other types of things that have to do with people who found themselves with their lives turned upside down or shifted around as a result of the of the pandemic, um, looking at their lives just all over again and asking, is this really worth it? Is this where I really want to be now? Yeah. You know, since the world kind of came to a stop and all the noise of all that stuff that was happening and the time other than the two hours and 53 minutes wasn't there anymore. Yeah. And uh, they started to rethink, do I really need this job now? What do you think companies need to do to stem this tide of this quiet quitting great resignation? And before you answer that, I want to mention that, I was a quiet quitter before I knew what the term was. Yeah. Uh, that same job that I had, I was there for three more years after the snowstorm. So toward the end of it, about eight months before the end of it, um, something happened one day. I remember the date then too, it was November 19th, 2004, when it just became abundantly clear to me that they really didn't care. And um, so what happened is I resolved from that day that I had already started a side hustle, which eventually evolved into the business I'm in now. And I decided, you know what? I've been going back and forth for two years. Am I going to become an entrepreneur or am I going to climb the corporate ladder? And I decided entrepreneurship is the way to go. Now, how do I get there? So 
what I resolved to do is that uh, for the eight hours a day I was required to be in that office, I would go there and I would do exactly what my job description told me I had to do. In fact, I printed out my job description, kept it in my desk drawer. And anytime I had a question, I pulled it out and I said, is this one of the bullet points? And then I also asked, am I covering all the bullet points? Yeah. So what was interesting is it happened is I got some feedback a couple months after this shift where somebody said, you know, you've been doing a really good job lately. We've noticed your metrics are up and and you're just doing an overall much better job. Now, what was happening is I was just doing a better job of conforming to their written expectations, which is what they were measuring me by. But what was being missed is I had stopped innovating, had stopped really caring about anything other than just doing that job really well so I could hold on to it until I got to the point where I could make the jump. So in a sense, I did quite quit. I decided, you know what? They expect A, B, and C out of me. I'm going to go in. I'm going to do A, B, and C, and that's it. Well, you know, it's a great story uh, because <clears throat> you were rewarded and complimented on just becoming a compliant functionary. Yeah, because I spent less time innovating, questioning, designing, um, thinking about how we could do this better, thinking about progress. And I just thought about, what do I got to do to get this check? Yeah. So, Which again, so, what they yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. basically, so basically I'd more <laughs> or less quit because, because yeah. any energy that I'd been spending on innovation, design, progress was now fully allocated to what I did after I left the office. Right. And so maybe they were even picking up on the change in your disposition that you were getting more fulfillment. Uh-huh. By entertaining this future, yeah, and it may, it wasn't related to their organization and the work you're doing for them, but but overall, you were animated and you were already moving on in your life intellectually, professionally, um, and and I think that's what the great resignation <clears throat> really surfaced, and that is so many of these jobs uh, required that kind of shutting down i mean i think i would say whether we thought of it in this way or not that many people have been quiet quitting for generations of work yeah where uh, our whole selves are not required at work or not even wanted at all uh, and this is one of the elements of the book and I, so what i would say is that at first glance looking at the great resignation the effort put forward to work towards some companies' relentless push to make shareholders happy and to increase dividends just was no longer a compelling reason to work for that company. And, right. and we will surrender our human agency only so much. And, and I think during the pandemic, sort of, not by design, but just by happenstance, we all sort of regained a measure of agency over how we spent our time, how much time we spent with the kids. Um, and the priorities slowly shifted to uh, to the to the hearth and not the office. and 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 once people got a glimpse of, I'm just speaking metaphorically, I got a glimpse of the sunshine, the, the prospect of going back to a long commute and an untrusting boss and questionable ethics 
and and uh, sort of a myopic one-dimensional organizational direction the, the choice was clear and people not only quit they were quite quit but they moved they moved closer to family you know there was this wholesale change in our you know big c culture um, yeah. the little c corporate culture is secondary but in a way big c culture swallowed little c culture and it was like you know to hell with this and um yeah, that cat's not going back in the bag. And no. who want that to happen, you know, seem more and more out of touch with reality than every, with every passing day, for sure. Right, right, right. So going back to the other piece that I was going to share after I told the story about the blizzard is, uh, you know, you were talking about, uh, you're, you're talking about the activity-based working model and what I've designed for my own business. Now, my primary business is working with with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, small business owners to launch and promote their podcasts. Yeah. So I don't have to go to an office to do that. Uh, I have a laptop and I have a clone of that laptop in case this one something happens to this one, so I can just pick up and keep working. Um, as far as uh, my file storage, all of it's on Dropbox, and I sync my Dropbox to my hard drive. So to me, it looks like I'm just going to my hard drive, but those files are actually somewhere else. So I can just go to another computer, install the app, wait a few hours, and my hard drive's up and running again. And where we are with softwares today, I use about nine. I use about five, about nine different softwares for all areas of my business. That uh, in the previous, you know, in the previous era, you had to have the the CD and you had to install it and everything else. But now you just log into the cloud, and you don't. And in many cases, you don't even have to know your um, your license key because it'll just populate automatically for you. Click yeah. install, and a minute and a half later, your software is up and running. Yeah. So, um, cause I have had, had this a year ago when the keyboard on my laptop went out and at the time I didn't have a clone, but I needed a laptop right then. So I went to Best Buy that same day, um, to take the existing laptop in, uh, so I could get a service under warranty to get the keyboard fixed and <laughs> to simultaneously buy another one. It was just like it. So I bought the other one, just like it went home, uh, installed the Dropbox app to pull the files or, or to create the pathways between my hard drive and Dropbox and, uh, and just went through and uh, did install, 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 install. And uh, within like 30 minutes, yeah. my entire workspace was recreated. Yeah. That's so, that, so, so, so that addresses that idea. Now, as far as um, the other piece of activity-based working, um, you know, I have very, when I work from home, I have various options. One of which is uh, I can sit in the living room on my purple couch, which matches my business brand. Mm -hmm. And I have one of those coffee tables with the shelf that lifts up. So it works like a desk. Yeah. So I can work in comfort there. If it's a nice day out, I can sit out on the balcony. I have a, I have a setup out there. Uh, I also have the cigar shop I'm sitting in right now. I have a coffee shop. I have a restaurant and I have a Panera bread. There are four other places that I can go. So particularly on days where I'm working long stretches, I just move around from place to place to place. It changes the energy, it changes the vibe, and it accesses different areas of my creativity and my energies. So uh, I can, so, yeah, so I can be in one place when I just got to just, you know, I just got to, you know, just got to just dive in, go into trance and pound away at something. Um, I can go somewhere else when I want to be in more, more of a creative, innovative, expressive stage. If I'm meeting somebody, I can be in a place where I can meet somebody. 
if I just want to be, you know, because sometimes, you know, people like to work all by themselves and sometimes just the energy of other people around them, even if the other people are doing different things is also a positive. So I can go to a place where there just happen to be a lot of people and I can be in my own little island with that buzzing around me and that helps. So it just depends on where I feel I need to be to maximize what I'm trying to do at that given time. So what I love about the activity-based working model is how it takes what I just described working as a laptop lifestyle entrepreneur and translates it into corporate. Oh, well, you're you're nailing all the highlights right there. In fact, you know, there's so much research from the field of psychology, which talks about why, well, Back up two seconds. I one of the things that experience we did before in a previous generation is we ran co-working spaces. Yeah. And so, and I with some business partners and I wrote the first book on co-working back in 2009. So this kind of location independent working really is at the heart of what we do and also at the heart of what activity-based working suggests, because the whole world is our office. And the company location is just one spot. And, um, you know, there's a lot of research, psychology research that suggests that, you know, coffee shops worldwide are really the most productive environments for work in the world. Everywhere you go, and when my, when I'm, I can remember the second book, whatever, I finished it by su- suggesting, you know, that Starbucks is the world's largest co-working space. It, it, you just pay for it your membership one latte at a time and there's something about mm-hmm. that what psychologists call social facilitation you don't know the folks around you mm-hmm. but when you're there and they're jamming and getting stuff done whether it's just a conversation or tapping away with their laptop <clears throat> it facilitates one's own productivity because you're in this sort of unspoken flow of other people's productivity the white noise of the cafe the sound of the um, uh, espresso machine working and all that to the point now where they have apps where you can have that sound on your laptop at home to kind of create that. But, but yeah, uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen those and, and it's similar to, um, you know, you can uh, pull up an eight hour video that just yeah. shows a crackling fireplace and sleep by right. that. Um, my, 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 my accountant, I've, I've seen his office and he has two giant, televisions that face his desk and uh he'll keep them um, and he'll have one tuned into i think cnbc and the other tuned into like something like turner classic movies or something like that and he keeps both the remotes on his desk and depending on what noise he wants in the background he, he mutes one and turns and then puts the sound on the other and, and so and that, and that's how he goes through his day and so activity activity based working just starts with acknowledging that that yeah, we do different things better in different locations, and a change of scenery, as you're suggesting, you experience too, is hugely impactful. You you know when you're, and this is where why we call a lot of what we do really designing work because space is a dimension, but all the other aspects of management are part of it too. But the space part is is an underappreciated shaper of work experience you know when you are in one location too long you become stagnant your thought processes start to sort of become tied to where you are and if you get stuck on something Mm -hmm. the the place becomes sort of a downward spiral and if you just lift and go over there 
whether it's because of sunlight or more or more ambient noise or whatever. Mm -hmm. Wow. The floodgates open up and I got that project done. So uh, it, it's just a more organic way of working. And, and, and for the corporate dweller who's required to go into a fixed station, mm -hmm. particularly if your immediate neighbors are annoying, whether it's they're loud talkers, they're calm mm -hmm. or whatever the circumstance and you don't have the option to get up and go and work in a place that's better suited for what you're doing. That's like a sentence. Uh -huh. and, and that just builds over time. When you're, when, when you're stuck in the office, the energy doesn't support you. So, like, yeah, I, I guess. So let me reveal a little bit about what's happened just in the almost hour we've been together. And I know we're getting ready to wrap up here. So um, the reason I did this uh, interview from where I'm sitting in the cigar shop right now is, um, you know, when I started this morning, I worked from home for a little bit. Then I went to Panera and uh, had some brunch. Then I came over here. Um, I had a meeting right before our recording that ran over. And I and uh, and I could have driven home and done this from my from my living room, but I thought, you know what, um, that's going to be a stressor, and I might be five minutes late. I don't want. I do not want to keep Drew waiting. So I thought, I, it's not too noisy in here. There's not too many people. I can do the interview from here. So I knew that the way to get this conversation going is I would I would read off my intro and then I would introduce you, and then. I knew the type of interview this is going to be because you may remember in the green room I mentioned who referred you to me. Yeah, yeah. See, I interview a lot of people who work with the same agency you do, and okay. I know how all those interviews go. Uh, you, you guys are some of the best prep guests that I get, which is why we love interviewing people from that agency. All I have to do is get you folks talking. Because <laughs> if you notice, did you notice you've been carrying a lot of the conversation? So. If things start you know, a couple times here, because they're watching some, I think, football game or something right now over on the other side of the room, things got a little rowdy with people crowding. Did you hear cheering? I did not, but I, it's, I, I it's, it's, it, it, it's because while it happened, I hit mute. Okay. And and hmm. another, another thing is, is the manager here, while I was reading the intro, kept coming over and telling me to keep it down. You didn't hear that uh -huh. part. So... Yeah. So once I got you telling a story about your journey through your intersection of your bones and passion, I actually muted while you were speaking, while I was listening to you. I said, look, I just got to get this guy started. Hang on a minute. But, but you know, the thing is, but, 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 but what I'm doing is I'm just revealing the background of how we can use different workspaces to our advantage and make the adjustments and the pivots so that we can access the energy we needed. Yeah logistically it would have been a little bit easier for me to do this for my living room, but I made this work and I was going to come back here anyway, any, anyway, when I was done with you, cause you're my last recorded interview of the day. So, uh, so I just saved myself two car trips. There you go. Well, I think, you know, to, to back up to some of the science, you know, I, I, the, this version of the book, I, I really took a lot of the science out and <clears throat> just focused on the case studies. But um, you know, one of the drivers, from a more academic perspective, point of view on this is is trying to understand, you know, what what I talk about is humans' cultural nature, and one element of that is that, you know, we weren't initially adapted to be sedentary. You know, we 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 were adapted in our current species, Homo sapiens sapiens, as nomadic hunter gatherers, and and culture has dictated that we. Um, 
are sedentary and and live the way we do now. However, sedentism in the in the world of work, in terms of sitting in the same spot eight hours plus a day, is a driver of psychologists suggest you know five hundred billion dollar a year costs in terms of type two diabetes, obesity, uh, sciatica mental health issues, hypertension, all these things that run against our nature. And so mobility, it sounds so simple. And this is what one of the selling points of activity-based working is you move around, you get more steps and you don't get stagnant in one place. So there's both the sort of mental productivity dimension, but there's also the physical health dimension. So when you talk about your day here and there, it's like, that's, how humans were meant to do things. Whereas the corporate context where you're obliged to show up, sit down and do one thing all day, completely unnatural human activity. And, and, and I think, you know, when people, this back to the great resignation, when people in the quiet quitting, when people were freed from that sort of norm, it was a hallelujah, you know, who wants to go back to that? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, another study um, showed that when you factor in the commute time, the time that you're stuck there because of your lunch hour and your mandated two 15-minute breaks and everything, if you calculate that and you take, even if you're a salaried employee and you break that down into an hourly rate, but then you also include all that non-working time that's required just for you to get there, uh, just the commute times and the time that you're kind of stuck there because if you leave, you just have to come right back anyway. Um your hourly rate goes down by over $2 an hour. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, think of it this way. Let's say that you're in a work from home situation and you have to log in because you have a team meeting at 9 a.m. Now, if you have to go to the office for that time meeting, that team meeting, you got to wake up at uh, 6 a.m. You got to get the kids off to school. You got to get dressed. You got to, you got to then, you know, deal with the vagaries of the commute and who knows what you're going to run into. And then there's a chance you might hit some road construction or an accident and you might be late for it. And then you have to have a 20 minute conversation about why you were late and your need to uh, be more organized in your life and every other damn thing. But from home, you could theoretically keep hitting the snooze button until 8.59 a.m. Sit up, log in and do that meeting. Yeah, and if, you know, if you're if you're the type of person who either can just snap to, or maybe you decide, you know what, this morning I'm going to sleep as long as I can, and then just jump right in, knowing that I have a 15 minute break afterwards, I can then go have <laughs> breakfast or whatever. You can do that. Yeah, those are folks that don't require coffee. Unfortunately, I require coffee, but I get I get yeah. I get the point. But the, yeah. you know, to to sort of pile on here, and we haven't even talked about the <clears throat> environmental dimension of this. You know what? You know what? Let you know what, Let's go an extra five minutes. Um, that's another thing about being a podcast host. I can go a little longer if I want to. If you've got five minutes, let's go five minutes on the environmentals. Take it away. Sure. Yeah. So when you back up and you look at the CO two emissions from the daily commute, it, I, I wrote a paper on this years ago when I first really started to embrace flexible working. Um, and Mark Golan, who used to be head of workplace at Cisco, he's now. <clears throat> I forget where he is. He's had a workplace at one of the large tech companies in, in the Bay Area. But he used to calculate this and the 
pollution from the daily commute considered across the country is one of the biggest sources of you know ozone depleting pollution. And then secondly, the office buildings okay. themselves are an enormous contributor to that as well. Yeah. And so between the loss of human time and productivity, the impact on the environment, you know, archaeologists in the future will look back at this monument or the we call archaeologists call monumental architecture, whether it's the pyramids or whatever. Corporate buildings will be viewed like that. It was mm -hmm. an effort to show power to society at large, uh, lost its functionality years ago. So the waste of office buildings and the daily commute <laughs> are almost beyond calculable. Um, but yet, you know, certain forces wanting to keep those intact. But I think, you know, it's AI and cloud and you're talking about your accessing all your things seamlessly across devices through Dropbox. Yeah. I mean, uh, eventually pragmatism becomes a tipping point and a lot of these legacy systems just seem silly as they are, but, but we're still fighting those battles. But, um, but the environmental aspect really excuse me again, uh, is one that should be mentioned in all this as well. Yeah, let me, um, now this is not a political podcast and I try and keep politics out of business, but there's there's no secret about this. Um, politically, um, I'm what you would call um, somewhere between conservative and libertarian. Uh, so in the, in the circles I travel in, uh, you know, things like the Green New Deal and all this uh, pearl clutching and this pounding about climate change and all that uh you know i'm supposed i guess they they say i'm supposed to think that that's some evil communist plot or something like that uh, by the world economic forum to create a one world government or something all right so i said that let's set that aside huh. um i am all for conservation i'm all for the environment after all does the word conservative have the word conserve in it yeah <laughs> okay so Let's look at these things, um, and uh, and you know, and implicit in some of the conversations about the whole climate change, green new deal stuff is the implication that capitalism capitalism is evil and it's the cause of all that. But why shouldn't capitalism be the driver of it, as you just said? Now, I don't know what your leanings are. You may be the complete opposite of me, and that's fine. But here's where I think that there's some common ground, and this, and, and I, and I target this toward the listener who may find themselves politically different from me. Um, capitalism, the way you just described it, looking at how we manage efficiencies, how we look at the um, the correlations between workplace culture, innovation, and environment. So. We have the technologies, we have the ability to create these different types of work atmospheres, and we can reduce that commute. I remember reading an article, uh, and this was about three months into the pandemic, showing um, all these uh, tourist areas that featured water, like lakes, canals, and things like that. And simply because the whole tourism thing was shut down, they had previously been polluted, but just from there not being tourism for a couple months, they became pristine. Yeah. So imagine if we can reduce the commute using the power of capitalism and the company's innate desire to lower retention and turnover costs, to 
help employees be more efficient, contribute more to the bottom line, return more on the investment the company's making in them. Is that a good thing? I think so. I mean, this is yeah. this is partly really sort of bringing it back to the book. What I tried to do, what I'm trying to do here <clears throat> is, is make the case to senior leaders that the model I'm trying to outline consistently leads to better top line and bottom line growth. It's not a, and, and so I reject the the either or choice that yeah. people often put up in front of us. It's That's just a lazy way to go about thinking about solving problems. Right. There's, so there's always a way and, you know, not to be a Pollyanna, but, you know, I think technology really <laughs> is, is the way forward. I mean, it, right. it always is. Of course, it creates its own problems initially. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or fear of problems but over time you know whether it's the steam engine or the internet in the first place or going way back the domestication of agriculture you know pick your <laughs> your top point in human history um so but yeah I, I i agree i think that um there's a way forward that uh can satisfy the needs of companies Yep. And the needs of people equally. And let I me, just, I just yeah. reject the idea that it's a trade-off. Yeah, let me give it let me give you two just very micro things that come to mind. Um you see this push for uh controlling emissions by forcing people into electric cars, regardless of whether our grid could even support that right now. So what if you solved the real problem, which was getting more cars off the road? More <laughs> people working from home, less cars on the road. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, is that simple? And I and I mentioned earlier, I made an offhand remark because I knew I was going to circle back to it about um, these uh, these companies seeing people work from home and then say, oh, well, they're going to be doing laundry on company time. All right, so let's develop that a step further. Let's say you have somebody working from home and they decide they want to do their laundry while they're at home because they have the machine, they have the washer and dryer in their house or their apartment. So... They, uh, they, they, yeah, they put in a load in the washer, go work for an hour, buzzer goes off, and they get up and they take that load and put it in the dryer and put another load in the washer. In the office space, they probably would have worked that same hour and then gone and taken a leisurely trip to the break room to take in a, to uh, drag out a seven-minute coffee break just for a change of pace. Probably longer than seven minutes if they're in Exactly, in- exactly. <laughs> if we're talking about two hours and 53 minutes total. So yeah. then at some point... They're going to have to fold all this laundry. <laughs> now, folding laundry takes, what, about 15 minutes? So now they're going to be spending 15 minutes folding laundry. In the workplace, they would have been spending that 15 minutes on an enforced break, which would have mostly consisted consisting of watching their watch to see how much longer they had on that break. Yeah. So, And <clears throat> then, because they got that laundry done just in the background while they were going about their day, Now it's one less thing they have to do at night or whenever they're done with their shift or their day at work. So now they can enjoy more of their life and they can be better rested and more productive the next day. Well, that's it right there. Yeah. Is what people actually bring to the work that they're doing for you. Um, And so being whole in the rest of your life and healthy makes you better working for your employer 
And I mean, it's not rocket science. It's just, <laughs> it's just become um, subversive, unfortunately, in some people's eyes. But I think, again, I, I think over time, um, we're moving in that direction of accepting these things. It's just, uh, it's just a slow roll. It's exactly. Yeah. All right. So, um, so we're actually past the top of the hour, and I'm so glad you were willing to stay with me for an extra few minutes because I thought this environmental conversation is a great place to end off because it's it's really something to spur people's thinking. And I want to invite all of our listeners visit Drew's website. It's www.drew d r e w drew jones dot c o not dot com dot c o. Yeah. And when you go there. Here's the action I want you to take. Aside from checking out his speaking, consulting, and all the other stuff that he does, and connecting with him on LinkedIn and telling him that um, that we sent you, because you can see the little LinkedIn icon, connect with him, tell him that you heard him on the Business Creators Radio Show. He'll love that. Um, get a copy of his book. It's called The Open Culture Handbook, Five Questions that Drive Engagement and Innovation. As I said, I got it on Kindle. Um, I've been scanning it. I'm going to be reading the whole thing. And uh, you can also see some of his other books, The Fifth Age of Work, The Innovation Acid Test. It's all there. So be sure to go and check that out. I think you're really going to enjoy uh, what Drew has to say. And with that, Drew Jones, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Adam, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the conversation. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.